The Sanctuary, a community of Jesus people promoting the glory of God in all things to all nations through gospel-centered missional living. Whether it be working with groups in Africa to build orphanages and help rid the continent of AIDS, or feeding the hungry, giving to the oppressed, and helping the hurting who live in our own community, The Sanctuary invites you to be part of a culture of passionate service. You can change your world. Be inspired. Join the movement. They're going to have a great time. We're going to have a great time. Second Corinthians, if you guys haven't been here or uh, if you don't have your Bibles out yet, you can get that out. Second Corinthians, we'll be in chapter 5. We'll have it up on the screen if you don't have a, a Bible with you today. It's great to have you here. I'm excited about what God might have for you. I don't know what that is. Um, I know we're going to be in Second Corinthians 5, and I've done my best to, to be ready, but we're going to let the Lord just direct our time and been praying for you and praying for what God has for you today. So I'm um, kind of excited to see uh, what God um, does for each of you today. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, um, I want to remind you of this. Um, we had one day of spring yesterday, and we're going to go back to winter this week, <clears throat> and then probably next weekend it'll be summertime, you know. But I do know this, next Sunday or Saturday night, change your clocks. We actually spring forward next Saturday night. So I just wanted to encourage you with that, get to freeze all week long and then lose an hour of sleep, all right? Um, so next week, don't forget, change the clocks, make sure you're here on time, all right? Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we'll be. We've been thinking a lot uh, about, I guess, who we are, I guess, as a church, where we're headed, what's going on in the life of our church, um, where the Lord might be taking us, um, and there's a lot to, to kind of hash through there. Um, <clears throat> just to remind you maybe a little bit of where we have come from, um, some of you will remember some of these steps along the way. Um, there was a small group of people who faithfully got together in uh, one of our church members' living rooms and said, hey, let's start a church, and they, they did. Um, and uh, not that long after that, they moved from that living room to a chapel, from that chapel to the theater. Just curiously, who's here that was at the first meeting? Look at that. Got some hands up back here, man. OGs over here on this side of the room, yeah. So... It was way back. Who go in the theater? Anybody in the theater? Five o'clock setup? Yeah, that was awesome. Okay, not. Um, so we did the theater thing for a while. Then we went over to Sartarsha Middle School over in um, New Territory. And uh, we were there for several years. And then somebody got the bright idea, let's move into the old dilapidated, broken down Sears hardware store. Uh, so we did. <laughs> and uh, that's where we're at now. Um, and, and that's kind of the physical journey of, of where we've walked over the last several years. And, man, I just want to tell you, I can't really overstate this. Over the last 10, 12 years, actually, I think at this point, I can't, I can't, I can't explain to you the amount of sacrifice that's been given for this place to be here. Um, the people, the money, the energy, the resources that have been poured into making it possible for us to be here um, not just today, but just the ministry that goes on here is, is kind of ridiculous for a smaller church. Um, and so many people have been faithful um, over the years to kind of get us to this point. Now, what does the future hold for us? Honestly, we don't know. We're asking some of those questions now. Um, what would it look like for us to, uh, to be here long term, long, long term maybe? Um, or what that might have for us? We're kind of diving into all those issues now. I'm asking you that if you're a member here, or you, this is your church, and you're not a member yet, but this is your church, um, man, we just be begin to pray with us uh, now about what God would have for us. Um, we are also pretty deep in talks with a couple of men that, that might be coming on. Uh, one of them might be coming on staff to be a, a, a part of our pastoral team here. 
Um, so we're, that's all happening uh, right now. So I'm asking you to join us um, in prayer about everything that goes into uh, leading our church in the next days. There's exciting times ahead. Um, we don't know what those are all going to look like, um, but we do know God's going to use us all to touch more lives with the gospel and touch more lives um, with the hope of, of the gospel and community and all the things that have come along with this uh, great place to be. So um, I am asking today, not just that you pray with this, but I'm, I'm asking us to kind of look ahead a little bit, not just where we might end up or what the Lord may have for us in those regards, but also who are we going to be? As a church, who are we going to be? So I think we have a particular kind of, I would say, DNA, church DNA, um, a certain kind of way that God has built us up to this point. But we speak into who we're going to be from this point on, right? Just because we've had some modicum of success in the past with doing things that God wants us to do or, or being faithful with the things that God's given us isn't a guarantee that we're going to do that in the future. We have to kind of begin to make some commitments to who are we going to be uh, in the days ahead. Um, so that's really what I want to kind of discuss a little bit today as we look at this Second Corinthians, or one of the application points is, as we go forward, who are we going to be? So um, we're going to tie in uh, chapter 5 with, with the whole book of Second Corinthians. We're just walking through it really chapter by chapter, um, and it's easy to take a chapter and segment it off from the rest of the book and forget that it, this was written in a letter, um, and Paul had a context in which he was writing all this stuff. Um, so just to kind of put it in the context of the whole book, we've seen three themes that have uh, begun to pop up out of the book of 2 Corinthians. First of all, um, God's power is displayed in our weakness. We talked about that a couple of times. Secondly, God gives us comfort, supernatural comfort, as we go through uh, times of pain and suffering. He supernaturally comforts us. He loves us. He wants to deliver us. The third thing that I would think actually is sort of a surprise as I've gone through and studied and prepared. This is something I didn't kind of expect to be so strong um, in the book of 2 Corinthians. It's this, that we have a supernaturally effective ministry while we suffer. We have a supernaturally effective ministry while we suffer. Now, that sounds probably counterintuitive to many of us. We think, oh no, uh, I, I'm suffering now. I'm in pain now. Life isn't what I want it to be right now. I don't have a ministry. I need people to minister to me. My ministry will come on the backside of my pain. My ministry will come on the backside of my suffering. And, and I think 2 Corinthians is kind of making the point, and, and Paul's making the argument, no, God's given you a supernatural ministry now. That wherever you find yourself, wherever that is, he's given you something to do that's going to be supernaturally effective. So it's not just you slogging it out even if you don't feel like it. It's the Lord working in you and through you even during times of struggle and even during times uh, of pain. So we're going to talk about some of that um, today, that Paul is going to give us more hope, I think, today, um, more help um, as we think about our suffering, how God is going to use that uh, in supernatural ways because he's calling us to be on his mission. God's got a rescue mission for the world. And I think we might lose sight of that sometimes. Like, what, what is God doing or what's he trying to do in the world and it's a rescue mission at the end of the day he is rescuing people from death and from sin and he's called us to be on that rescue mission with him so paul's going to kind of begin to tie some of those things together for us today um, as we look at second corinthians 5 so we're going to buzz through the first uh, like 10 or 11 verses and spend some big heavy time in the last several verses here in the text so look in verse 1 and he says this he says for we know that if this earthly tent which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. 
For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, we will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now we who prepared, or he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us to the Spirit as a pledge, or gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. So the first thing I want to say is Paul's uh, preparing us or, or speaking into us help and hope for the time that we suffer and the ministry that God's given us, joining God in his rescue mission. The first thing I want to say is, this is a bit of a recall to last week, but it's this, and that this is all temporary, and this is preparation for something else. This is temporary. It is preparation for something else. Some of us are so consumed with where we are now, the way things should be, the way things used to be, how much this hurts, how much I wish it was different, that we're forgetting this isn't it. And we're spending so much time, so much resources on what is or isn't or should be or a wish was that we're forgetting this is just a temporary preparation for something else. That is one of the great markers, one of the great sources of hope within Christianity. And again, we talked about that last week, that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit for something greater. So this is the good news of Christianity, right? What's the best thing you can imagine here on this planet? The absolute very best thing that you can imagine on this planet. It is a foretaste. It is a shadow of what's ahead. There is something greater that is ahead for us, okay? And the Holy Spirit has sealed in us this promise, this pledge from God that as we suffer, as we go through the pain of this life, it is preparation for another time and another place and something that is greater. That word pledge says the end of verse 5, or seal. Some of your verses will say that. Your Bibles will say that. That word pledge is this idea that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit has been given to us, and He raised Jesus from the dead, and He, has, he is sealing us now. So instead of it being something that happened in the past, look at it like this. The Holy Spirit is taking the power that raised Jesus from the dead, and he is working in you now to transform you. And that's part of the way he seals you for the future. That he prepares you and promises you for the future. And that he's working in you now. So he's sealing you now for that future work that's to come. Okay, so everything here is temporary preparation for something else. Look in verse 6. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body than to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. I want you to underline, if you're underlining things or writing things, that's why I want you to have that one. Wherever we are, no matter what we're doing, we want to live our lives in such a way that we are pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed, paid back for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, I want you to just appreciate how hard it is for me not to still be in verses 1 through 5. I flew through that. I'm going to fly through 6 through 10. I just want to camp out here. This is such great stuff. But I'm going to buzz through it, okay? So God's, uh, the, Paul is speaking to us that, that God's got supernatural things for us in our pain. He's working something in us for his great rescue mission. First of all, we need to remember this is temporary preparation for something else. Secondly, 
We have to live like a real judgment is actually coming. There is a real judgment by God that is actually coming. So here's what that's going to look like, okay? Now, we can talk about timelines and all the, we can do that later. Here's what I want to tell you that's going to look like. There's going to be a time in history, an actual physical uh, experience, when everyone that's ever lived or died is going to stand before the Lord. There's going to be a separation at that time where God's going to take those who have trusted in Jesus and he's going to put them here. And he's going to take those who haven't trusted in Christ and he's going to put them here. He's going to go to all of us who have trusted in Christ and he's going to say, how are we sure that you're a Christian? How do we know that we know that we know that you're supposed to be on this side of the, the, the room? And on the other side of the room, he's like, why aren't you on that side of the room? How do we know that you should be here, not a Christian, and you guys are Christians and not on the other side? This side of the room makes arguments from, I tried hard, I was a good person, I did more, ba- more good than I did bad, I went to church, I helped old ladies across the street, I left two Oreos in the box for everybody else, you know, all the good stuff that we've done over the years, right? And we're going to hope that that balances the scales in our favor. On this side of the room, those of us who Christ, God has said, you are in the Christian pile, how do we know for sure that you're supposed to be over here? Here's what's happening on that side of the room, okay? We're not making arguments, I should be over here because I did a bunch of good stuff. That's not what we're saying, okay? So there's a judgment that it's for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, okay? We understand that salvation doesn't come from being good or, or trying hard or being religious or keeping the law. We understand that. Salvation comes to us by faith, and our rewards from Christ come to us by faith. But here's the deal. The evidence of an invisible faith in an invisible God is a transformed life. The evidence of an invisible faith in an invisible God is a transformed life. Our deeds, the things that we've done, are not the basis of our salvation, but they are evidence of our salvation. They're not the source of our salvation, but they're the demonstration of our salvation. God is using even suffering to prove our salvation. You're like, well, how is he doing that? Like this. How are we responding when life is at its hardest? When life pushes you down, how do you respond? I'm not saying you have to be happy and plastic and fake, but what's coming out of you? Is any amount of faith coming out of you when you struggle? Is there ever a hallelujah, praise the Lord, because he's good and he's going to see me through no matter what when you go through the dark times? How are you responding God's using even your responses to suffering as a way to prove your salvation, as evidence of your salvation. It's not the way we get it, but it's an evidence of our salvation. So let me look. It's like exhibit C in the courtroom. So we're on this side of the room. God's like, you, you guys are Christians, as far as I know, which God knows, but it's like, you guys are Christians. How do we know? Exhibit A is Jesus Christ, Okay. Jesus stands up and says, Dad, they're here because they're mine. I bought them with my blood on the cross. Second thing that happens, faith. We have exercised belief, trust, faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Okay? Third exhibit is, you changed my life, and here's all the stuff that you did in my life as a result of of saving me. So I'm not saved on those bases, but I am offering them up at this judgment. Like, here's the evidence of the fact that you actually changed me. Does that make sense to everybody? So it's not my past to get in. My past to get in is Christ by faith. 
but I am coming to him and saying, here's my offering to you and everything that I did, and here's evidence and proof that you've actually changed my heart. We have got to live like there's actually a judgment coming for us. Some of us, so many of us treat this grace thing cheaply. We treat it haphazardly and loosely, and we live our lives any way we want to, and we do anything we want to, and we define happiness the way we want to, and the stuff that we need to have the way we want to, and we live like God's not actually one day going to call us into account for the things that we've done on the other side of the cross. And he does. We've got to live like there's actually a judgment coming. And what I loved about that verse that I pointed out to you, uh, where he says we're going to live our lives in such a way that we please the Lord, verse 9, our aim is to be pleasing to God. Some of us are going to walk out of here and we're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be judged. I better straighten up. I want my kids to behave well. I do, right? No comment from the crowd, but I, I want my kids to behave well. You do too, right? But at the end of the day, I don't want my kids walking around in fear of me. I want them to do what I ask them to do because they love me. And I want their heart's motivation to be, I want to please my mom and dad. I love them and they love me, and I want to please them. Same thing in our relationship with God, right? I think he's okay with you if he says don't hate somebody and you're afraid of him so you don't hate somebody. He's okay with that. But as you grow up, he doesn't want that. As you mature in him, he wants you to go, man, God, I love you and I want to, I want to please you because you are worthy. Right? We can come in here and sing the songs, but if you're not walking out of here in a way that pleases the Lord, is he worthy? Was he worthy of what you just sang? So there has to be some kind of change in us. We live and we aim to please God. You can love someone and not be pleased with them. So never misunderstand that. I'm not saying that we should walk out of here and change our lives so God loves us more. I am saying that God can love me and not be pleased with me. And I want to live in such a way that God not only loves me, but he's pleased with my life. A fear of not pleasing him and a fear of losing out on the, uh, the opportunity to please him will drive us to persuade other people, which we'll get into here in just a second. Look in verse 11. Everything is temporary, prepping us for something else. There's a real judgment that's coming our way. Verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest in God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer to those who take pride in appearance and not in the heart. For we are beside ourselves. If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Third thing, in light of all this preparation, uh, our suffering is being used by God to prove our salvation. There's a judgment that's actually coming. In light of those things, the third thing here is that in light of all that, we are to persuade men. We are to persuade men. Paul's going to use basically these last 10, 12 verses to talk to us about our ministry in persuading men. He says, man, we can be so consumed by this idea of persuading men that we look like we're beside ourselves. He basically is saying, 
I get so wrapped up in persuading people about who God is that I look like I've lost my mind. I'm beside myself. Because, why does he act like that? We are under the control of Christ's love. That's what's driving him. We are under the control of Christ's love. So here's my next question for you. What are you under the control of? And you're like, I'm not under control of anything. I'm free to do whatever I want. All right, well, let's just dig a little bit. What is it that controls your choices? So what have you been, since you woke up today, what have you been consumed in your thoughts about? What's been the predominant thing you've thought about since you woke up today? That's controlling you. What controls your choices? What controls your mind? What breathes life into your spirit and drives your passions? That's actually a really good question to ask. What gets me going, man? What gets me excited? What drives my dreams? What causes me to look in the future and go, man, I want to live for that. That's what gets me excited and gets me up and gets me going. That's controlling you. What's behind how you relate to other people? Your relationships. What's driving how you're relating to other people? Under whose control are you? What is it that is controlling you? Are you if you're persuading men and you're out of your mind, are you controlled by Christ's love? And that's really where he drives hard for the rest of the text that we're in. He wants to be controlled by the love of Christ. Christ's love should be our primary motivator in our relationships and in the life that we live, I think, but our relationships specifically. What does that look like? Several things. Back in verse 15, he talks about, or ahead in verse 15, he says, uh, he, Christ died for all so that they who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their, on their cross. What does it look to be controlled by Christ's love? First of all, have you gotten over the cross? And we talked about this about a month ago, and I need to hit it again. Have you gotten over the cross? How many of you are believers, and you still struggle with sin? How many of you were awful before Christ, but he saved you anyway? How many of you know where you're going to stand before the Lord someday, and it's all going to be made clear how much he paid for you, how far away from him you really were, how patient he's with you even today? Have you gotten over the cross? Have you forgotten where Christ has saved you from and what Christ has saved you to? I do think there's going to be some element of our standing before Christ someday where we stand in front of him and he shows us. I don't know if there's a videotape of the cross. He's going to show us what he paid to get us. Because I don't know if I can worship him if I don't really truly appreciate that. And I think he might look at some of us and he's like, Joe, you got, you got over the cross. You moved on beyond it. It no longer overwhelmed you when you thought about who you were and what I did to get you. So what does it look like to be under the control of the love of Christ? The first thing is, we cannot get over the cross. His love controls us. Second thing, verse 18 talks about this. That we are under, we are the conduits of God's love for others. We're the mechanism that God uses to give his love to other people. So here's what I want to say about that. Listen, we need a rich, intimate, moving, daily, life-changing, private devotional with Jesus Christ. You need time alone in the garden with Jesus, okay? You need that, and it is precious. You need some time 
and I'm going to say daily, where you're, it's just you and him. And you're expressing your love for him, you're reading about him, you're finding out about him, the Holy Spirit's talking to you. Sometime when you were with him, and he's speaking into you, dine, the Bible uses that language of dining with Christ and fellowshipping with Christ. Maybe during that time you speak in other tongues in a prayer language, you're just overcome by some scripture. And I want to say yes, you know, amen to that. All of us need that. But if that is the end effect, if that's all you have in your relationship with God is some deeply intimate, devotional, daily relationship with Him, at the very best, that's immature, and at its worst, it's rooted in a very pagan and popular romantic understanding of love. That's more like infatuation than it is a mature love. So some of us are into the, the daily, personal, private experience with God, but it doesn't control us to go persuade men. I am a conduit of the love of God for other people. That's what it looks like to be under the control of God's love. Not just caught up in your own religious experience, but also a, a way in which God shares his love with other people. Next thing, verse 16. Therefore, he says, from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Then he talks about some of the other things about that. Here's one of the key effects of, or the after effects of the gospel, is that we see lost people. Like we see people as lost or saved, Christian or unchristian. Kind of like that, remember in the sixth sense, that kid, like I see dead people, you know, remember that kid? It's kind of like that. He, that kid only saw living people and he only saw dead people. That's the two categories that he placed everybody in. We see people and we see them as lost and dead or alive in Christ. And we remember that how, that's how God used to see us. And we're controlled by the love of Christ to persuade them. So we're talking about year one, which we've talked about here for a couple of years now. Are you still seeing your one that way? Like, they're lost. They are away from Christ. They have no hope except for the gospel, and God has placed you in their life. So how are you? What are you going to do with taking the gospel to that one? Verse 15, again, another thing, what does it mean to be controlled? We see lost people. Next thing is, we stop living for ourselves. Look at verse 15. He says, he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. That is a comprehensive statement. So again, let's just go back to yesterday. Take your schedule yesterday. Think about it. What did I do for myself yesterday? How much of my day was driven by what I did for me yesterday? You're like, well, I have kids, and I didn't get to do anything for myself. To some degree, what you do with your kids is driven by yourself, by your desires for what it means to be a good parent or to be seen as a good parent or to be respected as a parent or praised as a parent. So we all carry around in us this selfish desire to do things for ourselves. He's saying if you want to be under the control of Christ, you will stop living for yourself. So what does that look like? So what is your job? Most of us in this room have a job, especially our adults, right? Or school. So there's something you're doing with your day, eight hours, ten hours a day. What's your job? If you're an engineer, did you engineer this week for a paycheck or did you engineer for Christ this week? Did you date somebody this week for love? Or did you date someone this week for Christ? Did you play soccer this weekend for yourself? 
Or did you play soccer this weekend for Christ? Did you parent your children this weekend for Christ? Or did you parent your children this weekend for yourself? Did you eat food this week for fullness? Or did you eat food this week for Christ? See, this is the deal with Christianity, right? It's comprehensive. He doesn't let us off the hook for anything. Later in the, in the Bible, later in the New Testament, he says, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. So I don't get to subdivide my life out and decide which parts of my life I'm going to live for him and which ones I'm not. Everything is transformed by the power of God. Everything, every part of me, to the point that I will no longer live for myself, I will live for somebody else. Christ loved us. He loved you. Man, don't ever, ever get over that. And he loved you so much that he died for you. Don't ever get over that. Live for him. He loved you so much he died for you. Live for him. Are you? It's a really simple question. This is not complicated. Are you living for him? So what does that look like? We talked about it, man. There may be a prayer language involved or blessings and prosperity and devotionals and Bible reading. And man, again, I just want to say yes for that. Like I know for me, this tends to happen when I'm driving somewhere and a particular song comes on, uh, usually off my playlist. I'm going to run through some that just get me. Like I'm literally crying. I look so dumb. I have to look stupid in the car. And I'm driving. I'm crying while I'm driving. There's a song called You Found Me from FFH. That goes way back. If you take out the goofy melody and you listen to the lyrics, it is super powerful. And it talks about how God found me in my darkness and in my cave of my sin and my longings. And man, you found me. And I just, I listen, I'm singing the lyrics and it's like this chippy song and it just overwhelms me all of a sudden. Hits me almost every time. More than enough. I don't know, Mindy may know that. I don't know if anybody else knows Brooklyn Tabernacle. Listen to some Brooklyn Tabernacle choir stuff. And there's this one song on this one CD more than enough. I mean, you are more than enough. He is more than enough. And I forget that all the time. He is more than enough. That'll wipe me out. Even if. One of the newer songs. Fantastic. Yes, I want you to have all of these experiences with God. He loves you. And he is speaking to you. I want you to be overwhelmed with scripture. That'll happen many times while I'm just getting ready for Sunday and I'll read through a scripture and it hits me in a different way, and it overwhelms me, and I'm in my study, and I'm crying while I'm writing, and all that kind of stuff. I want you to have those experiences with God, personal conviction, freedom in your life. But listen, this, this whole chapter, Paul's entire point in, in 2 Corinthians 5 isn't just that God saved you, and he loves you. It's that you were supposed to be the avenue, the vehicle that he uses to take that love to other people. I'm overwhelmed at what Christ has done for me, this cross thing that he did for me, the love that he had for me, so that I will persuade men, I'll be controlled by the love of Christ, I will no longer live for myself. That is his point as he drives us through this text. So it's a prayer, something like this today, God, I am yours, and I want you to use me, and I want to live for you. Thank you for your love. And I mean your love like right now, not your salvation love, which is awesome. Thanks for making this even possible. But man, God, remind me of your love today. Remind me of the cross today. I want to be yours more and more, and I want to be submitted to you more and more. I want to live for the one who loves me and who died for me and has a love for the people around me. Let me live for you like that. Verse 21, we didn't read it, but just jump down there. The Bible says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is an amazing verse. 
like an amazing verse, one of the most powerful verses in the New Testament that explains what's happened to us because of what Christ did on the cross. Why is it in this passage? Do you think Paul was just like, here's a great idea, and he just threw it in there? Or is there a context? Is he trying to explain something to us? I think he's explaining something to us. He has a reason why he stuck this verse in here, and we take it out of context so often. There's a reason why it's here. Basically, what he's saying is, God loves us, and we should be overwhelmed by the love of Christ. He's changed us. He's causing us to persuade men to love for other people, to be controlled by God's love. What does that look like? It looks like this. He has given his life for us. He didn't just love us in word or doing nice things for us. He died for us. That's an extreme way of loving somebody. That's a really extreme way of showing someone that you love them. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. If our giving habits don't at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things that we want to do but cannot do because our giving expenditures exclude them. Don't hear about money. I want you to hear about your life. There should be something about the way that you give to other people that you can't do the things you want to do because you're spent with them. That we are controlled by the love of Christ, persuading men about the love that God has for us. Look in verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if any was in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, all things, uh, new things have come. Now all things, uh, these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. He's committed to us the word of reconciliation also. Fourth thing, our new hearts are big enough to receive God's love and then give that love to other people. We've talked about that. We have to preach this gospel to ourselves over and over again. I'm a new creation. I'm a new creation. All things have passed away. I'm new. That's the gospel message for you because there's so many other things that are in our hearts and in our heads telling us lies telling us things that aren't true about ourselves. So we have to tell us that, those, those truths all the time. I am in Christ, and his power to overcome sin is in me. There are a lot of voices that want to judge you and define you. They want to tell you why you have significance or why you don't have significance. Who defines you is just as important as how they define you. Who tells you your significance is just as important as what they say about your significance. So the real you is in this verse right here. It's not what other people say about you or what your pain tells you about you or what your past says about you. Some of us have forgotten who we are. 2 Corinthians 5.17, that's the real you. That's you. But man, the sin is overwhelming and and this is so hard and pain, and I've lost so much, and he's such a whatever, and she's a whoever, you know, whatever. You're not defined by those things. Who are you in Christ? You're a new creation. All things have, old things have passed away. All things have become new. And we need to remind ourselves, preach that gospel to ourselves as much as we can. So Paul looks at us, and he's like, you've been completely transformed. You can't escape the fact that Paul looks at us, and he's like, you haven't been kind of reborn. You haven't been sort of renewed, you know, like a, 
house renewal and you do your kitchen, but you leave everything else untouched. He's like, you've been completely reinvented. Your life and your values and your dreams and your thoughts, all of them come from a new identity that's been reconciled to God. Your thinking, your choosing, your feeling, your discerning are ruled by a new power. Gosh, this is so important. So many of us look at life in that old those old goggles, like I have to interpret life like this person that I used to be, or an old way of thinking. We have been completely recreated. So how do we best understand this? I think a lot of Christians see coming to Jesus like we went to a car wash. Anybody have a clunker, even now, but back in the day, when you first started driving, just a clunker, man, right? Shouldn't have been on the road kind of a car. All right, so we've all kind of probably walked through that at some point or another. Some of us see coming to Jesus like taking that clunker to a car wash. Okay? It's still a junker. It was junky before you drove it into the car wash, and it's junky when you come out. It's just clean. Right? All I did was clean it up. Conversion, coming to Jesus, is more like taking that old clunker and getting a new engine dropped in it. And then a total detail job. Right? and getting the whole thing cleaned and restored from the inside out, like a restoration. It's a dead car that was made into a new car. So back in the day, we had a Pontiac Sunbird. Does anybody remember those? We had four people in our family in a two-door Pontiac Sunbird, okay? And I was already like 13 or 14, way too big. We're just crammed in this car with my mom and dad. The engine died in that car. Like, I don't know what they come with, but it died. So my dad gets a 304 dropped in it. It's so heavy that it bent the front wheels. The front wheels started to do that over time because the engine was so heavy. That was my car I kind of learned to drive in, right? Dude, when you got in that car with a 304, a little two-door, you could fly. Fly donuts were really easy in the church parking lot, you know, over at the high school late at night. Paul is telling us this. He's like, listen, you have been completely recreated from the inside out. God didn't just come in and tinker with what was there. He completely reinvented you. He completely recreated you. He's equipped you with everything you need for a new life. So he's like, do you need more power in your life? You've got it. So, gosh, man, I want to, some of us just need to walk out of here with that. Some of us feel so defeated, so ill-equipped, unequipped to live the life that God's given us. And I think some of us need to hear, no, you've been recreated for this life where you're at right now. Do you need more power? You've got it. Do you need more love in your life? You've got it. Do you need to overcome sin? Press the gas pedal of this new life and just see what happens. Right? Sometimes we don't test this new life that God's given us because we're afraid it's not going to be powerful enough. It's powerful enough. It is. He has recreated us completely to live this new life. Look at verse 18. We'll be done. So he said, all these things have, uh, are from God. He's reconciled us to himself through Christ. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteous of God in him. This is God's mission to the world, and it's a rescue mission. 
It's his mission for the whole world to save us from our sins, to save us from the enemies of Satan and death and hell, and it should be our mission to, rec uh, to reconcile people to each other and to God, to restore people, to restore people to each other, to restore people to God, to resolve differences. So that means we're going to love the loveless, help the helpless, assist the poor and the penniless. We're going to partner with organizations that do those things well. But here's what we are best at because we're a church. We are best at making disciples. We're going to help people that need help. We're going to give stuff to people that need stuff. But at the end of the day, guys, that's not our call. Our call is to reconcile people to God. That is God's mission. That's the mission he's given us. Sometimes that means coming along and helping people with material stuff. But that is not the end of our mission. That's not the point of our mission. It's not the goal of our mission. It's to reconcile people to God. So again, you're like, yeah, the church should do that. Well, listen, you're the church. That's not my job. That's not our job. That's your job. So is that your ministry? Is that your life's goal? Are you pursuing that with your life? Here we are. God, I'm never going to get over the gospel for me. God, I will live for you. God, I will be on your mission of reconciliation. God, I will be your conduit of loving other people. God, I will live to influence other people to love and to live for Jesus Christ. I think Paul is also right. I know he is. He's writing this, this book to persuade the Corinthians to live for Christ, to persuade the Corinthians to please him. So now our mission took a, not a right turn, but man, it's been split to two parallel tracks. I'm persuading those who don't know Jesus to come to know Jesus, and I'm persuading you to live for Jesus. How many times have we kind of gotten lulled into this thinking of, well, man, I'm saved and I'm going to go to heaven someday, but right now I'm a little bit bored with this whole Christianity thing. It's not really doing much for me right now. Haven't seen any miracles lately. Been going through some hard times, some suffering. So I've kind of got this deal. I've worked out this deal with God because my life doesn't look the way I want it to because I'm not experiencing the things that other people have experienced. I've got to deal with God that I'm going to kind of take care of my stuff now and I'm going to see him when this is all over. It's easy to kind of get lulled into that kind of thinking. So Christian, who in this room needs you to kind of come along beside them and persuade them to live for Christ? Haven't we had brothers and sisters in the Lord who've just slipped away? They've just kind of wandered off. Maybe at one time they loved Jesus, loved him, and it was sincere and real and true. Life hit, things didn't turn out the way they wanted to, and they just drift. Paul is coming along his brothers and sisters and saying, I am persuading you to be under the control of Christ, to live for him, to not live for yourself anymore, to be on his rescue mission for the world. Who needs you to come alongside them and do that with them? Now, Here's another scenario where that plays out. It would be awesome if somebody in here was struggling and I could put my arm around you and say, hey man, live for Jesus. He loves you. Let's do our best. Sometimes I need to kick you in the rear end. Let's just be honest. Sometimes you need a kick in the rear end, don't you? You need somebody to come behind you and go, listen, pull your head out, right? Wake up, grow up, live for Jesus, right? Paul is passionate about this. He's like, we, under, we should be under the control of Christ, persuading all men 
to be under the control of Christ, to no longer live for themselves, but to live for somebody else. So I'm challenging us as a church to kind of look around and think, who needs me to come alongside them and to persuade them once again to live for Christ? Who needs me to come alongside them and help them see that Christ loves them and he is worth it and people need Jesus? Who needs that from you? Who needs that from me? We are radically, radically reborn. We are completely changed. God is using everything in our lives by his grace and by his power to continue to make me new and to put me on his rescue mission, to put me on mission with him. So that means when self-pity comes my way, I can remember that Christ has already recreated me and he's empowered me to slay that sucker. When bitterness comes my way, I can remember Christ has already remade me and he's given me the ability to kill it. When I slip into a casual Christianity, a mediocre, powerless, meaningless Christianity, I remember that Christ has loved me and my love for him can be renewed. So where are we headed as a church? To be seen, to be determined. Who will we become? We can speak into that today. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? We want to be a church on on Jesus' mission, on Christ's mission. He is reconciling the world to God. That is his rescue mission. Can you pray something like that, God? Who can I be on mission with you? What, my one? Is there a one in my life, God? How can I come alongside you? You're already working. The power of God is already happening. How can I come alongside you? Be your instrument. Be on your mission. Put me on your mission. We need to become a church that's persuading others to know God. We want to do good things. We want to help people individually, corporately. God, we want to persuade people to know God. Show us how to do that, Lord. We want to be a church that encourages other people to be controlled by Christ. Who can you do that with? Has God kind of pricked your heart on that one? My friend has just wandered off. My friend has just drifted away. Who can you encourage to be controlled by Christ? We want to be a church that lives in the fear of God and the love of God in order to please God. God, I want to know you, love you, be motivated by love for you, not just being afraid. Make me a person, make us a church that lives in the fear of God, love of God, under the control of God to please God. Father, thank you for this big, thick, wonderful, challenging text that we looked at today. You're taking our entire lives and you're working them in us, God, to be on mission with you under the control of Christ to please God, to reconcile the world, your rescue mission. God, don't ever let us forget or lose sight of what you're doing in us and through us, God. Use us that way. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for being here. Our guy's gonna...